Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and classic coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. This past week, I have been virtually attending the 2020 Fantastic Film Festival. Based out of Austin, Texas, it is the largest genre fest in the United States and spotlights many indie and upcoming filmmakers. Benjamin and I still have a few flicks to watch, but so far have enjoyed their short film programming, as well as an animated feature flick, The Old Man Movie. I also just finished watching today, Daughters of Darkness, which was an awesome vampire flick that was recently restored. Make sure to check out moviejohn.com over the next couple of weeks to find our coverage of the festival, where you can also check out the flicks Movie John Contributor and my film pal, the cinema freak of nature, Nick Nelson watched. He will be writing reviews of some of his favorite movies from the fest that you can now add to your watch list. Don't miss it over at moviejohn.com. In other exciting news, I am proud to announce that my partner in crime, Benjamin and I, have adopted a child of sorts, a werewolf to be exact. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fooks Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein I will be picking up our new addition to the family from the store this week, and am so overjoyed. We have not settled on a name quite yet, but I'm sure once we look into his eyes, it'll come to us. In the meantime, I am preparing a spot for him in the lab. I think he will find his new abode quite comfortable. I also plan to include him in my Vampira vignettes, that I will be filming for the virtual Halloween party that I will be hosting with Benjamin. Speaking of the party, goblins and ghouls, on the other podcast I co-host, I Saw It in a Movie, my film pal Ryan and I recently discussed movie-inspired costumes, and I spoke about the virtual Halloween party I will be hosting. As my fellow film pal, Mr. Clink, stated after receiving the coffin-shaped invite in the mail, He remarked, you are going psycho for Halloween. And well, Crypt Dwellers, he ain't wrong. I am. My guests will be treated to watching the first three psycho flicks, along with special Vampira hosted intros and a secret creature feature. If you are interested in checking out the invite and my party plans, head over to moviejohn.com and click on the I Saw in a Movie page under MJ Pods. 
There you will find posted images of all the essentials needed to throw your own virtual Halloween. If you have any questions, you can always drop your favorite Little Grave Digger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. Mwah! And now our feature presentation. Time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. In today's episode, I will uncover another ghostly flick Lewis Allen's 1944 film, The Uninvited. Goblins and Ghouls, this is one of my favorite spooky flicks. It stars Ray Milland, Ruth Hussey, and today's corpse of interest, Gail Russell. Betty Gail Russell was born September 21st, 1924 in Chicago, Illinois. When she was 14 years of age, her family moved from the Windy City to Santa Monica, California. Gail was discovered by a Paramount casting manager who had been driving on Melrose Avenue. He saw a gaggle of kids and remarked to one of the young gals, you know, you're very attractive. Why don't you come into the studio and we'll make a test of you? So, you know, not creepy at all, I guess. And you can't get ice cream cones Oh, take no sin Take off your skin I dance around in your bones When the lazy syncopation Of the music softly moans Then take no sin Take off your skin One of the fellas, a classmate that was there, said, Oh, she's nothing. We've got a girl called Gail Russell, who is a great beauty. And well, kids, the casting manager told him to have her come by too. Gail Russell did indeed go for a screen test and was signed to a contract with Paramount on the spot. Prior to co-starring in The Uninvited, she only had two film credits to her name. Before she was cast in The Uninvited, Lewis Allen, the director, recalled Billy Wilder, had this to say in regards to working with her. You're welcome to her. I had a terrible time with her. Without any formal acting training, Gail found herself thrown into a world in which she never felt she belonged. She was extremely shy and demure, and without any acting experience, she was left feeling completely out of place. The studio was willing to take a chance, though, and hired her an acting coach. With her blue eyes and dark hair, she was often compared to Hedy Lamar. Gail may have only weighed about 100 pounds, but don't let that fool ya. She was a talented archer and used a 48-pound bow. It was on the set of The Uninvited in which Gail's lifelong struggle with alcohol would begin. Due to her stage fright, she took to the bottle for comfort and to help calm her nerves in between takes. In an interview conducted with director Lewis Allen in 1997, three years prior to his death. He recalls with the interviewer and writer, Tom Weaver, his experience on set of The Uninvited, in particular working with the newcomer actor Gail Russell and with Ray Milland. He said, Milland was very supportive. 
He was extremely good on The Uninvited and very professional and helpful in getting a performance out of Gail. Between takes, he would take her aside and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. He was excellent with her. In fact, thanks to Milland, Gail became a star. Unfortunately for Gail, her life would be plagued by her struggles with alcohol. She would go on to make only 28 movies until her death on August 27, 1961, due to liver poisoning. She was only 36. There is not much information out there about Gail's life. And well, goblins and ghouls, your favorite little gravedigger is so intrigued with this particular corpse. Similar to Gail, I too have been stricken with anxiety and have had tendencies to literally worry myself sick. My face has turned bright red in stressful situations and my hands sweat profusely, or going into a panic attack literally over a dentist appointment. Here's the thing though, despite my hand regularly feeling like that of the creature from the Black Lagoon, a slimy, moist, unwebbed grip, Benjamin still holds it and loves me for it. In fact, many people have gripped my hand over the years, especially when I have been down. I never met Gail, but I feel like I know who she was. For in me, I see a bit of her. I too have turned the bottle, but have been fortunate enough to exercise control. In conducting my research, I did find some books available about Gail's life and will be procuring them soon. Once I read them, I'll be sure to share what I learn with you, my fellow crypt dwellers. Based on the 1942 novel by Dorothy McArdle, The Uninvited opens on what is said the Cornwall rocky coast of Southwest England. In reality, it is Northern California, where the film was primarily shot. It is 1937, and a London music critic, Roderick Fitzgerald, who goes by Rick, is played by Ray Milland, and he is traveling with his sister Pamela, played by Ruth Hussey, and they are on holiday when they stumble on an abandoned seaside home known as Windward House. They call them the haunted shores, these stretches of Devonshire and Cornwall and Ireland which rear up against the westward ocean. Mists gather here, and sea fog, and eerie stories. That's not because there are more ghosts here than in other places, mind you. It's just that people who live hereabouts are strangely aware of them. You see, day and night, year in, year out, they listen to the pound and stir of the waves. There's life and death in that restless sound, and eternity too. If you listen to it long enough, all your senses are sharpened. You come by strange instincts. You get to recognize that peculiar cold which is the first warning. A cold which is no mere matter of degrees Fahrenheit, but a draining of warmth from the vital centers of the living. Their doggo, an irresistibly cute terrier named Bobby, chases a squirrel into the derelict home, which causes Rick and Pam to follow after him. When inside, they are overcome with possibilities and fall in love with the home, deciding they need to find the owner to purchase it and abandon their city lives for a life by the sea. Goblins and ghouls, this is in fact one of my favorite movie homes. I dream of owning a place by the sea. Maybe not as large as this, a cottage would do, but to be able to fall asleep with the windows open and hear that lovely sound of the sea. 
Wouldn't it be simply grand? How lovely. Why does it make me feel I'm on a boat? It's the light on the ceiling. That's the sea. It's rather nice to wake up and see that. Oh, how I do hate living in a London flat. Well, I suppose if you're brought up in an old house, you've always hanker for one. It's, it's stuck. You try it. It's locked. Family skeletons, probably. Oh, what a bore. They purchased the home for a ridiculously low price from Commander Beach, played by Donald Crisp. Beach's orphan granddaughter, 20-year-old Stella Meredith, played by our corpse of interest, Gail Russell, is completely distraught over the sale, as it was her mother's home, and despite the home overlooking the cliff at which her mother fell to her death, she still feels an attachment, as she considers it the only connection to her family. Rick and Pamela invite Stella to their home, but her grandfather forbids it. The commander gives hints that the siblings may not find the house is empty after all. Unbeknownst to Pamela and Rick, there is someone of the ghostly type already living in Windward House. Are you trying to tell us the house is haunted? No, Miss Fitzgerald, no house is haunted. But I had some tenants five years ago who complained of disturbances. Well, what was the trouble, Commander? Ladies carrying their heads under their arms? I declined to discuss it and cancel the lease. But I couldn't cancel a sale. We wouldn't want you to. Of course, one does feel that a story like that should bring the price down. I've already made a very considerable reduction, Mr. Fitzgerald. Perhaps we both need time to think the matter over. But our offer's definite, isn't it, Rick? Oh, yes, yes. Very well, then I accept it. Title deeds and checks will be exchanged by our solicitors. In the meantime, I have your word, and you have mine. After Rick and Pamela purchase the home, they rush back to it, in which Pamela begins scheming everything she's going to do with the house, from furniture to curtains. However, their initial charm for the home quickly depreciates when they step foot in a room that was previously locked a studio of sorts overlooking the sea. I am particularly fond of this room, despite Pamela's negativity towards it. However, there is a peculiarity to the room itself. While Pamela and Rick chat, they are first overtaken with a chill, a sign indicating the presence of a ghost. And then the flowers Pamela brought to the room begin to wither away, and their dog Bobby, well, he won't even come up the stairs to join them. Well... Now we know. The one ugly room in the house. Oh, it's not so bad. That window, it's like a cucumber frame. Well, they put that in later to make a painter's studio. Even the view doesn't cheer it up. What'll we do with it? What? Well, my workroom, of course, is ideal. Put the piano over there with shelves for music, plenty of space to walk up and down, manuscripts all over the floor, hot pincers to tear the flesh from people who keep telling me luncheon is ready, stacks of checks from my publishers, and you think this room is damp? It needs airing. It's funny it should strike so cold in here after such a warm day. Oh, Lord. What, Rick? I suddenly felt completely flattened. Do you suppose I'll ever be able to write any music here or anywhere? What on earth are you talking about? You don't suppose you made the most howling mistake, do you? Oh, Rick, have we? Why did the commander suddenly come down this price like that? The disturbances. Rumors like that are dynamite if you're selling a place. Upon exiting the room, the siblings find Stella Meredith outside the home, leering. 
The siblings then remark that they should try to befriend the young girl. Rick heads into town where he goes into a tobacco shop and stumbles upon a postcard rack with pictures of his home, Windward House. The shopkeeper, learning that Rick is the new owner, offers up some details about the place. Oh, maybe you're the new owner. Yes, my sister and I bought the place yesterday. Well, well, I hope she'll bring it back to itself again. The last lot that lived there weren't no good. Went away owing money. <laughs> Got out of their lease, starting ugly stories about the place. Oh, so that's how the rumor started. That's what I do say. Well, here you are, sir. Nine seems to be all I have. All right. Of course, there are others say different. There are? Well, that's only natural. After the way the lady of Windward House died. God rest her soul. You mean the commander's daughter? Only child. Come near breaking the old gentleman's heart. It's never been the same since. How did she die? Fell off the cliff. Accident? That's what I do say. Good morning, Mr. Hardy. A copy of Amateur Gardening, please. Yes, Mrs. Coatsworthy. Well, the best of luck to you, sir. Something of interest from this scene, Goblins and Ghouls, is that a patron comes into the shop, played by Moina McGill, the mother of Angela Lansbury. Lewis Allen said during the interview with Tom Weaver that Moina was a very famous English actress, and when the war came along, she came out to Hollywood with her two sons and daughter, Angela. Lewis would later give Angela a part in a picture due to Moya's insistence, saying, Oh, I wish you'd give her a job. Lewis hired Angela to play a role in his picture, Our Hearts Were Young and Gay. And three days later, before the picture started filming, he got a call from George Cooker to inquire if Lewis indeed did hire Angela. He informed Lewis he would be testing her for a role in Gaslight. Inevitably, Angela was hired and let go of the Lewis picture. And well, good thing she did, for Gaslight would end up being her breakout role and earn her an Oscar nomination starting the actor's successful career in Hollywood. I love to learn little tidbits like that, don't you, goblins and ghouls? Upon exiting the tobacco shop, Rick runs into Stella Meredith in town, and well, it is not hard to see he is smitten with the young lady. Mr. Fitzgerald. Yes? Oh, it's you. May I speak to you for just a moment? Now look here, young lady. If you want to talk me out of Windward House, you might just as well save your breath. Oh, it isn't that. It's about me yesterday afternoon. My behavior was inexcusable. Come now, it wasn't as bad as all that. Thank you very much. Your grandfather made you apologize, didn't he? Oh, no. It was my mother. Your mother? But I understood that... I beg your pardon? I kept looking at her last night, thinking how I'd let her down. But isn't your mother dead? Yes, but I know all about her. From grandfather, of course. I was only three when she died. But I thought you said you looked at her. The portrait hangs in my room. My father painted it. Oh, then it was his studio. Yes, and she was so beautiful. Let's go for a walk. Grandfather will never get over her death. He's hated Winwood ever since. Well, that's understandable. But it isn't fair to hate a house because someone died there. I love Winwood because she lived there for three years. And those were my years. And that's why I don't want anyone else to live in it? Upon learning she is 20, he decides... Well, she's over 18, so it's okay. At the time of filming, Milland was 37, an age the young 19-year-old Gail Russell would never see. 
The two go sailing and hit it off, becoming fast friends. Afterwards, Rick returns to Windward House with their housekeeper, Lizzie, and learns that Bobby, the doggo, has run away. This will be Rick's first night in the house, and it is easy to see Pamela has worry written all over her face. When Rick tucks himself in for the evening after devouring an apple in his bed, which no matter how many times I have watched this flick, I am still unnerved by. Who eats an apple in a bed? I suppose he could use the comforter as a large napkin. Regardless, as soon as Rick blows out the candle, he is startled by a sound that appears to be coming from the downstairs living room. He goes to investigate and finds Pamela in the hallway. Pam, is that you? We don't want to wake Lizzie. But isn't it Lizzie? No, it isn't Lizzie. It's coming from downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. Take hold of yourself, Pam. I'm going down and search the place. Rick, I've searched. There's never anything there. Never? Do you mean you've heard it before? Yes. Rick, it's true, isn't it? The sound, I mean. You're hearing it, too. Of course I'm hearing it. You see, I wasn't sure. Pam! I thought I might be going crazy. Was that why you didn't tell me? Yes, that. But it's your home. It's all we've got to live in. Sounds so heartbroken. Now, don't get rattled, Pam. There's a logical explanation for this. Such as? Well, you can't expect me to give it to you offhand. It stands to reason. Does it come every night? No. Just when you begin to think you dreamt it, it comes again. Be calm, Pam. Be calm. I'm all right. It'll stop soon now. How do you know? It dies away at dawn. Goblins and ghouls, I find this crying sound to be extremely frightening. Here's a fun fact, though. On the Criterion Edition Blu-ray disc, The menu features this crying sound. I have been known to fall asleep with this movie playing, in which then returns to the menu page, only to startle and terrify my partner in crime, Benjamin, when he awakes to the sound of the woman crying. Something interesting I learned from the interview Lewis Allen did with Tom Weaver was that Allen did not want to include any ghosts within the film. Instead, attempting to keep all apparitions off screen, he found the sobbing to be much more scarier than floating poltergeists. I have to agree with him here. Often what frightens us most is what we can't see, in which our imagination takes over and creates our own version of the boogeyman. To the pleasant surprise of Alan, for the British release of the film, the censors cut all ghost imagery from the movie, and to the delight of the critics, it was praised, claiming Alan showed restraint by not succumbing to flim-flam effects. I personally couldn't agree more. The American-released version does show the ghosts, and they are perfectly fine, but I still feel less is more. Rick returns to bed, assuring himself that he is not the least bit rattled, and that it is quite silly to be upset. 
only to immediately leap into bed and hide under the covers from the sound of the wind. That's the dawn breeze. Well, that's all for tonight. Oh, well, it's a pity, really. Hardly gives one time to look into it. Now, listen, dear. Look, let's talk tomorrow. I'll die if I don't get this. Pam, leave your door open in case you're nervous. All right, Brady. And remember, you haven't a thing to worry about. This business can be scientifically explained. Probably a loose wire hidden around the house somewhere. Acting as an aerial, picking up the sound of some woman in the village crying. Was she crying when the last tenants were frightened out? Well, maybe she had a sad life. Anyway, I'm here now and I'm not the least rattled. Not the least little bit in the world. It's just silly to be upset. I love Lewis Allen's direction in this picture. Even now, this picture is seen as one of the original haunted house flicks, inspiring many later filmmakers such as Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg and more. It is hard to believe that this was Allen's directorial debut, especially with the astonishing cinematography work from Charles Lang who would go on to receive an Oscar nomination for his work on The Uninvited. He would unfortunately lose to one of the greatest noir pictures made, 1944's Laura, featuring one of my favorite stars of Hollywood's past, Jean Tierney. Charles' work is absolutely stunning in The Uninvited, which is composed of mostly natural light and candles, as the Windward House did not have electricity. This lends to the eerily atmospheric vibes present in the film. With the shadows and patterns cast on the wall from the sea, I find this flick to be spectacularly haunting. Speaking of haunting, Pamela and Rick come to terms that their home, well, it may be inhabited by ghosts. Mr. Fitzgerald, Windward House belongs to you now. Why do you bring this matter to me? Because we want information. I, for practical reasons, and my sister, because she believes it's a ghost. And she'd like to know what the ghost wants. What well, about Bosch? Bosch, I agree, but... When did the noises start? You inherited the house, I believe. From my grandmother. And there were no disturbances there in her time? None. Any further noises now, they're from perfectly natural causes. It is rather helpful to know what exactly the ghost wants. For if you're able to assist them, maybe they will be able to move on and rest comfortably. Rick pays a visit to Commander Beach to see if he has any insight on the specters rattling through their halls. I have to say, Rick seems quite intrigued with his haunted house, so much so that he invites Stella Meredith for dinner that evening, despite objections from her grandfather for her to associate with the Fitzgeralds. Upon her arrival, she senses a spirit in the house, but rather than being fearful, It instead calms her, as she believes the presence to be of her late mother, Mary Meredith. Stella shares a touching moment with Rick in his studio, the room in which he and Pamela first felt the cold spot within the home. While in this room, Stella is overcome with a feeling of bleakness, much like what was experienced by Rick when he entered the room for the first time. She dashes out of the room, exiting the house, heading towards 
the cliff. Rick snags Stella just in time before she goes over the cliff. They are interrupted by a shrilling scream coming from inside the house. It's Lizzie, the housekeeper. For heaven's sake, Stella. What's the matter, Rick? You were going over the edge. Was I? If I hadn't caught you. I hadn't any sense of danger at all. Look. I think this is where my mother fell. By the dead tree. Are you all right? Quite, thanks. Except dying of hunger. Then you must come and get some food. Do you know this is our very first party in this house, is it? Shall we sing her the song? His introduction to music. Love. We took a birdie, tra-la-la, laid an egg on the Bundy's song. The Bundy's song began to crack. We took a birdie, la-la-la, we took a birdie. They rush inside to inspect, to find Lizzie babbling on about seeing a ghost, describing it as a crawling mist, the ghost of a woman. Stella heads up to Rick's studio to see if she can glimpse the poltergeist. When Rick follows her, he finds her collapsed on the floor and he calls the doctor. Dr. Scott is played by Alan Napier. Upon his arrival to the scene, we learn where Bobby the doggo has been. Yep, he's been shacking up with the doctor. Too afraid to stay in Windward House after being the first to spot the ghost. Dr. Scott gives a history of the home. It's not ancient history to us. Please go on. The model's name was Carmel. She was Spanish, a Spanish gypsy and a thorough bad lot. So was Meredith from what I can gather. Well, didn't Mrs. Meredith suspect? Oh, she must have. The thing was an open scandal. The girl and he'd have been stoned out of the village if it hadn't been for Mary Meredith. She was very much admired. I suppose she just accepted the situation. And she's still sobbing her heart out about it. Well, where's Carmel now? Dead. She died in this very house a week after Mary fell from the cliff trying to save her from suicide. Ironic, wasn't it? Well, is it known why the girl tried to kill herself? Meredith said to have tired of her. Think of it, those two women struggling on the cliff. I wonder if Mary's death could have been murder. It's been hinted at, all right. The whole story was dug up and embroidered when Stella's father died. When was that? Three years ago abroad. He never came back to Windward. All of them dead with their secrets. Well, one of them's not quite dead enough for me. Oh, don't say that about the poor soul. I tell you, Rick, if a spirit comes back, it's for some particular purpose. The good doctor remains at the home with Pamela and Rick, waiting to see if he, too, will catch a glimpse of the ghost, and, of course, to look after Stella Meredith. Upon waking up, Stella claims there's nothing to worry about. She knows the ghost. It is indeed her mother. They convince her that she needs rest and that Dr. Scott will take her home afterwards. I wanted to see the dawn with her. Her? Don't you know who it is in your house? It's my mother. You saw her? I didn't see her. But when I woke, she was here in the room. It was full of a scent. I could feel her presence everywhere. And there was something else. Something I've never known in my whole life. What? The knowledge that someone loved me very dearly. Now, come on, young Stella. I'll take you home. But I don't want to go. Sorry, but I've got to get some sleep, you know. But I can come back. No. What do you mean? 
You couldn't want to keep me away from her. Stella, remember how ill you were last night. But that was nothing to do with her. I think I was just frightened after what Lizzie said. I tell you, my mother would never hurt me. I shan't be afraid again, please. I think this is the perfect time, Crypt Dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's venture to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together we shall slice open and examine character actor Alan Napier, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the Dr. Carruthers. Come in. Come in. Make yourself at home. Pour yourself a drink while I wheel out tonight's specimen. Thank you. It kind of feels a bit chilly in here tonight. Would you mind if I light a fire? Oh, certainly not. I'm sure our guests won't mind. Who is paying us a visit tonight? Well, Tonight we have none other than the cordial aristocrat, Alan Napier. The best story of the supernatural that's ever been made, I think, called The Uninvited at Paramount. And uh, where it was interesting was that the script was wonderful by the producer, Charles Brackett, who is a cultivated man from New York, not at all the typical Hollywood type, and immune from the impulse to have vulgar exaggerations, you know, to have uh, ghosts doing this and so on and so forth. It's uh, a very simple story, and I've seen it a dozen times, and each time, a scene I was in, when I see it on the screen, uh, cold chills run up my back because of the writing in the telling of the story and the uninvited was brilliantly done Ray Milan played the lead I had a nice role in it of a doctor an English country doctor wow this fella barely fits on the slab he is as tall as a beanstalk yeah it's true he is just shy of two meters tall to be exact or as you say in America Six foot, six inches. So, of course, I remember him from the 60s Batman TV show in which he played Alfred, the butler. I honestly know very little about this guy, so if you wouldn't mind skipping the formalities, let's just get to slicing. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one the fact that he is statuesque. Number two, his dignified and rich, smooth voice. Number three, his wiry yet strapping frame. Number four, his kind eyes. And number five, his silvery locks. As I mentioned, I didn't really know any of his pictures, and sadly, until I decided to uncover today's crypt flick, The Uninvited, 
I didn't realize that he was in even in this movie. And I know that sounds quite surprising because I did really enjoy him as Dr. Scott. I thought he was quite good. But as you know, I have eyes for Milan. Yeah, I, I did like him in The Uninvited. I liked that his character was a doctor, which is a role that he played many times. Not as many times as Bela, but... Still a number. Yes, and you too have played the role of doctor. Oh, it's not a role. Pardon. I am a doctor. Sorry, I was mistaken. That's okay. But yes, I did like that, and I like that he is not entirely dismissive of the spooky things they do. Like many, you know, scholarly, professional folks, especially in old movies, would be. So he's right there for the, the makeshift Ouija board, the seance. He's there for it. But most of all, I liked his character because he didn't really have any stakes in this outcome. But he was just kind of there for the ride, like a member of the Scooby-Doo gang. Yes, I, I think that is quite an accurate description of him in this movie. And of course, I loved the seance scene and especially Alan's portrayal of Dr. Scott. And as you said, you do normally see that in some of these older pictures where doctors are very against anything like spiritual. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was so encouraging of them actually contacting spirits from the beyond. And I found it really thrilling we should really conduct a seance at some point, Dr. Carruthers. Well, listen. First thing I have to get is a Sonovox. Then we can talk. Do you remember the Sonovox? No, but I'm very intrigued by the name. Explain. From You'll Find Out. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> that is necessary for the seance, I believe. This is an actual thing one can procure. Well, it was a real thing. It kind of predated uh, what's known as a talk box, which was made fam famous in uh, music, guitar, keyboards. But this was a thing that this one uh, session guitarist used. And it was uh, pretty wild. I, I want something similar. Yes, you need, you need to track this down. You must. <laughs> I'll try. Another thing that I found quite interesting when I was conducting my research of Alan is I never, I realized that he shows up in a lot of flicks, but often uncredited, mm. such as the film Cat People. I don't know if you have seen that movie. Yeah. Yeah, I quite enjoy that movie, and I honestly, I try to watch it around spooky season. I, I really like it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to definitely have to do a rewatch soon. And I also didn't realize that he was in a Hitchcock movie that I've been meaning to see for quite some time, Marnie. Uh, have you seen that one? I have. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned Marnie because I just rewatched that earlier this week, actually. And it had been, oh, I don't know how long since I've seen it, probably 20 years so I forgot that he was in it. He plays the father to Sean Connery's character, who is extremely no. 
But at first I didn't recognize him because he didn't have a mustache. And I find that Alan Napier is kind of like Vincent Price in that way. Like when you see them without a mustache. And then you forget that they weren't just babies born with mustaches. (laughs) Right. No, that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, I guess some babies are born with a mustache. Well, probably. Maybe they were. Maybe they were. That seems accurate. We should investigate that further. But my favorite movie that I think that I've seen Napier in is Isle of the Dead, um, which is a Mark Robson movie that also stars Boris Karloff. So the first time I saw this, it blew me away. I took so many notes while just casually watching a movie, which is not something I typically do. But because I want to write about it at some point, it's quite a wild movie. It can be interpreted many ways, even more so now since the last time I saw it. But I loved it as a commentary on kind of like the behavior and characteristics of those that are in cults. So it's a great movie. If you ever see it on, check it out. Yeah, wow. I... I don't even know if I've heard of it before, but it definitely sounds like a movie I need to watch immediately. Yeah. I, of course, love Boris Karloff, as you know, so I will watch pretty much anything with him in it. And this, uh, you know, sounds like something I'd like, as well as Marnie as well, which I don't know why I haven't watched Marnie, but there are so many Hitchcock flicks that I still need to check out. I feel with him in particular, I've watched so many of his hits, Yeah, but I have to go back and watch because I know you've watched a lot of the older Hitchcock films. Yeah. And a lot of those are still in my blind spot. Well, yeah, with Marnie, I, it's quite something. It has a storyline that is ah it's a little different than lots of his movies there's some pretty deep stuff going on so I was kind of shocked when I watched it again because I had kind of tuned out probably lots of what was happening the first time I saw it yeah and I I feel I owe it to Alan to check it out because when I was conducting research I also learned that he was really not that fond of being remembered for Alfred in the Batman Mm. TV series. (laughs) And of course, when you had brought this corpse out, that's immediately who I thought of was Alfred. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And apparently he wrote an autobiography entitled, Not Just Batman's Butler. (laughs) So that's (laughs) how much I think he wanted people to know that he made other things and he was quoted saying this about the part of Alfred. My future in television didn't appear to be very hopeful because of the height. You'll see, you'll notice that all the television stars are about five foot eight at maximum. It's difficult camera wise to have a good coherent picture in that little box. If one of the actors is six foot five and the one next door is five foot six and uh, I was getting a little anxious when out of the blue my agent Bobby Littman 
called me up one day and said, Alan, I think you're going to be Batman's butler. I said, what? He said, don't you read the comics? I said, never. He said, nevertheless, Alan, I think you're going to be Batman's butler. You even get to drive the Batmobile. This is all absolute crazy nonsense to me. I said, no, 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 Bobby. He said, look, if it's a success, it may be worth well over $100,000. I said, I'll do it. And that is how I became Alfred Batman's butler. But we know that the Batman needs a butler because he cannot take care of himself. Yeah, he seems like a just a grown-up child, I guess. <laughs> a man-child. So, yeah. And I don't know. I I just feel I definitely, after finding out this piece of information about Alan, I just need to go back and watch some of his other films because I just feel bad. I know how that feels when people focus on something you did and you're just like, yeah, but I made all of these other things. Yeah. <laughs> Can you please watch some of them? Absolutely. Anyway, uh, how did he go sleepies? Well, Napier suffered a stroke in 1987. He was hospitalized from June 1988, and he had been gravely ill for several days before his death of natural causes on August 8, 1988, in Santa Monica, California. He was 85 years old. Wow, so he did manage to live quite a long life, uh, which explains I saw he was in 147 credits, like among TV and film. That's a lot. Yeah. Good for him. And actually, that reminds me, I think now it's time to turn to our file marked Corpse Connection. Corpse Connection. Where we make connections between the fine folks we study together. Now, are you ready for tonight's connections? Yes, I, I am so looking forward to this. Okay, well, I gotta tell you, tonight we have quite the web to detangle. According to my research, Napier had worked with five of the folks that have been highlighted in the cinematic crypt. Number one... He was in the movies The Blue Veil and Johnny Belinda with Agnes Moorhead, who was featured in episode 18. Number two, he was in the movies The Strange Door, Isle of the Dead, which we discussed, and Unconquered with Boris Karloff, who was featured in episode 9. Number three, he was in The Invisible Man Returns with his fellow baby with a mustache, Vincent Price featured in episode 18. But then when we get to George Sanders, featured in episode 15, we come across a real web indeed. So let me break it down. He was in the movies The Strange Woman, Hangover Square, Moonfleet, Forever Amber, and Action in Arabia together with George Sanders. And yet also... The House of Seven Gables, that also had Vincent Price. Lord, which also had Boris Karloff. And the fifth connection, A Scandal in Paris, which also had Carol Landis featured in episode 20. So this is like 
six degrees of corpse connection. We'll try to figure that one out. Yeah, this is really wild. And so many great movies that he was in. Mm-hmm. Again, I didn't even realize he was in Lord. And we just watched that not too long ago. I've been trying to place him, but I, I can't. Now, I haven't watched A Scandal in Paris yet, but now I'm very intrigued because knowing Carol Landis was also in it, and of course, George Sanders is always fun Mm -hmm. to watch. That's another one I'm going to have to check out. Yeah, me too. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. He worked with a lot of great corpses, and again, it seems that I just have so many flicks on my watch list, compliments of you, (laughs) and... I love coming to the morgue because I always end up finding all of these great movies to watch. So thank you. Certainly. Well, chap, I am afraid I must bid you adieu. I I got some movies to watch. So what do you say we tuck him in for the night? Yes, I think it's about that time. Night, night, Alan. Good night. Sleep tight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. We return to the haunted halls of Windward House. Stella's obsession with the home causes concern from her grandfather, who decides to make a call to an old family friend, Miss Holloway, who just so happens to run a sanitarium of sorts called Mary Meredith's Health Retreat, named after her late friend Stella's mother. Meanwhile, Pamela and Rick have plans of their own. They speak with Dr. Scott about the possibility of holding a seance in order to make contact with the ghost of Mary Meredith. Can't you convince her her mother wouldn't want her to go near that blasted house? Not I. She's been listening for a voice that's been still for 17 years. I give her a sedative. Why don't we try to get a message from Mary Meredith? Do what? We could hold a seance. You're not serious? Well, that's how the dead are supposed to communicate with the living. According to the idiot fringe. Oh, Rick, you've no right to say that. Many intelligent people believe in spiritualism. Have you ever been to a seance? I have. Shaded lights, the alphabet laid out on the table, an upside-down wine glass, messages from somebody's Uncle Oswald, how to find a mislaid toothbrush. Oh, oh stop scoffing, Rick. Not all seances are fake. They invite Stella Meredith to the home for the seance. Rick hopes that Stella shall receive a message from her mother, telling her to stay away from Windward House. The seance is one of my favorite scenes of the film. Their setup is completely makeshift. The use of Scrabble tiles in a circle to assemble the alphabet and a simple wine glass used as a planchette. When the ghost does communicate with them, it is revealed that the ghost is guarding Stella And suddenly, Stella becomes possessed and starts to mutter in Spanish. Stella, what is it? Are you ill, Stella? Quiet. Leave her alone. Oigon. Oigon. Stop her, Scott. She's in a trance. I saw this happen once before at a seance. I thought it was a fake. But this isn't. I know. It's dangerous. May I ask her some questions? No, no. It may be best to try and reach her mind. Now keep your voice quiet and reassuring. Are you Mary Meredith, Stella's mother? Ayanoe. Ayanoe. Nolikrena. 
Well, let's just say Grandfather was not pleased with this turn of events, so much in fact that it prompts him to send Stella away to Miss Holloway's health retreat, where she finds herself confined and locked away. When Pamela and Rick pay a visit to the retreat, they are unaware that Stella has been checked in, but have a somewhat unnerving meeting with Miss Holloway, who explains a rather twisted love affair Mary Meredith's husband, a painter, had with Carmel. She also reminds them the people at her spa are not patients, rather, they are guests. When Carmel was taken ill after contracting pneumonia, it was Miss Holloway who had nursed her. Pamela and Rick later inquire with Dr. Scott of this and learn from records that were kept by the previous village doctor that this was indeed true. I have to admit, this is where the story can get a bit convoluted. There is a lot going on. Affairs, confinement at a sanatorium, and ghost hunts. Somehow, though, it all comes together. However, I really would like to check out the book that this film is based on, because I have a feeling the story may have been told a bit smoother. In the end, it is learned that Miss Holloway does not have Stella's best interest in heart at all. When she discovers that Pamela and Rick are on their way to break Stella out of the so-called spa retreat, she hatches a scheme of her own. I've been giving your problem the most serious consideration, Stella. It's not much of a problem. I just want to go home. To your grandfather's. I couldn't permit that. You've never been very happy there. Where would you really like to be? You mean, Wentwood? That's the basis of all your trouble, Stella, being kept away from there. Do you think she wants you there? Yes, I think she does. And what she wants? I want. I've talked with the Fitzgerald Stella. They're very fond of you. They'll let me stay there with them? For the present, your grandfather's not to know that you've left here. It would worry him. You must go straight to Windward. Is that clear? When Pamela and Rick finally make it to Miss Holloway's House of Horrors, they learn of Stella's departure to Windward House and quickly discover Miss Holloway is out of her mind. When Stella arrives at Windward House, she expects to find Rick and Pamela awaiting to welcome her in open arms. Instead, she finds her grandfather in the studio, and he begs Stella with his last breath that she is to leave the house. Suddenly, a ghost appears, and her grandfather dies of a heart attack. Initially, Stella believes the ghost to be that of her mother, However, instead, the ghost is not seeking comfort. It seeks harm. Chasing Stella to the cliff, Rick arrives on the scene just in time. Upon returning back into the home, they find the pages of the physician's journal that was given to them by Dr. Scott from the previous village doctor. It has been flipped open to a particular page, and it is discovered that Carmel had given birth to a child in Paris which happens to be where Stella was born. Mary Meredith and her husband attempted to then take the baby and flee back to England, only to have Carmel 
follow. At which time, upon her arrival to Windward House, Mary Meredith attempted to kill the child. I'm Carmel's child. Oh, Stella, don't mind too much. Mind? Can't you see what it's done for me? Always has been something fighting in me. Something that couldn't be calm and cold like Mary. I can be myself now. But that's what she's waited all these years to tell you. Oh, Mother, now I know. She's happy now. The scent's gone. She won't cry anymore. She's gone forever. Everything becomes clear. Carmel was Stella's mother, not Mary Meredith. By learning this, Carmel's spirit is finally free, while the evil spirit of Mary Meredith remains. Rick confronts her in a way that is just perfectly maligned. Hokey. You see, we're on to you now. You told Carmel to clear out and leave her baby, but Meredith wouldn't stand for it. And despite them, you tried to kill their child, and instead went hurtling over the cliff yourself. Saintly legend rather a black eye, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, so you don't like the sound of laughter, do you? But that's all you'll get from now on. <laughs> I should think you'll be on your way now, Mary Meredith. We've had enough. We're not frightened of you anymore. From now on, this house is for the living. And with that, the spirit of Mary Meredith is gone, and Windward House has been cleared. So, of course, there is only one way for this to all end, and that is with nuptials. But not just for Rick and Stella Meredith, but for Pamela and Dr. Scott as well. Another magical Hollywood marriage ending. You're still shaking, Rick. I've had a narrow escape. She might have been my mother-in-law. Ta-da! I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in checking out this movie, the only way it seems to be currently available is by purchasing the Criterion Disc, which I must add is a wonderful release that includes a great essay booklet featuring a critical writing from Farron Smith Nima and the 1997 Lewis Allen interview from Tom Weaver. It also features two radio adaptations of the film, both starring Ray Milland, a corpse that will no doubt inevitably be featured on a cinematic crypt of the future, Goblins and Ghouls. <laughs> In my next episode, I will examine another ghost tale and pry open the coffin of Kay Hammond in the 1945 David Lean flick, Blythe Spirit. I will also be joined by my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy character corpse Margaret Rutherford. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. Please take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes and leave your own review, or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. 
You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It In A Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of Movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you are wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie, or email at dear I Saw It In A Movie at gmail.com. Or if you're old-fashioned, like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. All of this information is available on our website as well, moviejohn.com under MJ Pods, where you can also subscribe to our print quarterly movie publication. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Stella Meredith. If I'd ever been reasoned with, I might have been a better child. Instead, well, goblins and ghouls, I lived a rather raucous life, quite the monster mash indeed. Goodbye, film pals.